On the 14th of May 2014, Nick and I recorded the following episode of Unanswered, set for release on the 4th of June. Usually we'll pick a topic earlier on the day or sometimes the day before recording. The exception was show 10, Notebooks and Romance, where I decided we would freewheel as an experiment and see where it took us. With no strong feelings on this episode's topic, I felt another attempt at freewheeling would be fun, although I neglected to inform Nick of this, so he went in even more blind than I did. The conversation ended up taking on a mainly political tone, somewhat informed and inspired by the lead-up to council and European elections happening in the UK on the 22nd of May. We discussed UKIP and immigration, some stuff about out-of-town housing and living, media coverage and a little diversion about accessing public services and rather specific things happening in the local branch of Nick's bank. It was a pretty unfocused and messy two hours, and because of the election stuff, the recording is very much an artefact of that precise moment in time. Worst of all, I think my throwaway mention of the Eurovision Song Contest, another incredibly timely and localised happening not best served by a monthly podcast, may have been responsible for everything which followed. Ah, blimey, this is going to be interesting. I've done no warm-up. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Um, This will be seat-of-the-pants action. We are recording on my own audio here. We are also recording on Skype too. So all that remains is to give Nick a call. And here we go. Hello. Good evening. This is London calling, and here are the results from the United Kingdom jury. It's been a marvellous show. Thank you so much for having uh, an awesome show, Europe. I want to do a freestyle rap right now in a really heavy European accent, but I can't bring myself to. Oh, okay. We saw just enough of the scoring to hear a few of them doing their little bits Mm -hmm. before giving the... uh, it's always the most crushing and embarrassing time for everyone involved. The first half of Eurovision, very heavily rehearsed, and then the second half is like the host country just hoping that they can get the voting stuff over and done with as soon as possible, all the results as soon as possible. And then you've got all the involved countries, and each one's trying to get a bit of their personality. This is like their moment, and they want to say thank you, and they want to say what a great show it was and try and cheer on their own guy and perhaps do a little bit of singing or something. And it's just like, they need to get their bit in, because that's that's their moment of exposure. And then you've got the host country going, oh God, don't do it, we're really pushed for time, this is the boring bit. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's always, that's always fun. They didn't used to do the little skits though, did they? It feels like they've got less self-awareness and self-respect now than they had before. I think there was probably the same lack of self-respect throughout. <laughs> they're, just, they're just more aware of it now. I've been a little bit reassured by the internet's response to uh, earlier in the week I uh, tweeted about how I felt cheated because I was sure I remembered signing a social contract back in the 1990s or late 1980s that said we all agreed that Eurovision was shit and we weren't going to watch it anymore and yet the last couple of years on Twitter it seems that uh, I was duped uh, because lots of people seem to be watching it now. But then a couple of people told me, hey, we, we might be being ironic. And then a couple of other people told me, no, no, it wasn't just you. I feel cheated too. So it's like one of the only things I was certain of. I was into comics and they weren't that cool at the time until Tank Girl came along. 
a lot of the TV and stuff I liked wasn't that popular until it was so popular I wasn't allowed to talk about it anymore. The music I liked was always a little bit not quite what was in the charts all the time. But we all seemed to agree on Eurovision. I was sure that we were all forced to watch it by our parents and we all decided when we moved out we weren't going to watch it anymore. But no, apparently not. Yeah, I never signed that contract. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently you didn't. (laughs) I've been a pretty regular viewer. I think any situation, I think it's just Twitter has brought all of this out of the woodwork and now I'm having to deal with it again. <laughs> I didn't like watching TV when I was a kid. With my, if I was downstairs, I had to watch the TV my parents wanted to watch and I, I will always have a grudging fondness for some of the main soaps just because I kind of grew up with them even though I didn't want to. So EastEnders and Corrie and stuff like that, I can kind of... I recognise some of the old staple characters when I see them on the front of uh, TV Quick or something like that. But, um, yeah, Eurovision was one of those ones I thought I'd got away from. And I'm I'm hesitant to throw my truck in with any situation where Scott Mills is seen as representative of me, which is what happened on Eurovision. <laughs> I wasn't happy about that. Yeah, that's certainly the one part of Eurovision that I didn't sign up to but still happens nonetheless. So on that level, I can sort of feel some of the pain that you are feeling with the whole of the social contract. For me, it's like, mm, I didn't really ask for Scott Mills. I I, I will accept the absence of Terry Wogan. He had to go. I accept Graham Norton. He seems to be growing into the role. That's all well and good. But the rest of the Eurovision presentation team, which I think are more involved with the BBC Three stuff during the week, with the semi-finals and all that kind of stuff, didn't sign up to any of that. Not on board with any of that. On the other hand, though, I suppose, looking at the other representatives for the other countries, at least Scott Mills is boring. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, if, if that's his biggest crime, um, that can't be so bad. Unanswered. What are we going to talk about, Steve? Oh, you had to ruin it, didn't you? I, I, I was just enjoying this, uh, this track we were on. I was quite happy to see what... But then you're like, no, let's have a topic. If this happens to be what we're talking about, then I'm perfectly happy with it. But I'm just... <laughs> I've got that sort of slightly anxious surface tension bubble where I'm thinking, if I get really into this, is Steve going to suddenly change tack in a minute because he wants it to be about something? And, and I'll have invested all this effort into, like, when I spend so much time complaining that people just go off half-cocked about everything on the internet, and then I, and then about people like you, Kip, I just do it all the time. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't really, I haven't really done my research. I don't know, for all I know, all of the people saying stupid things who are apparently in UKIP haven't been members for years, or and they're actually all fine. UKIP are probably okay. In my distant past, I was involved with the newsletter at my secondary school and it was issued uh, once every half term or once every term. Can't really remember which. I want to say once every half term. I had a one-page editorial uh, opinion page, I guess. I was one of those writers. Excellent. I like those writers. And it was called Viewpoint. I have a remarkable memory for this stuff. (laughs) That was it. It was called Viewpoint. I mean, uh, we're talking We're talking about, you know, I was like 13, 14, 15 years of age and I was writing this stuff. So, you know, I hadn't necessarily fully formed my views and perhaps I was in a point in my life where perhaps I wasn't necessarily that interested in thinking the mainstream view. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember expressing in one of them that I could see where UKIP was coming from. 
Mm-hmm. Now, back then, they weren't ever referred to as UKIP because we're looking at what ninety three, maybe ninety four. Oh gosh! So they were okay. they were still predominantly known as the United Kingdom Independence Party, and they were very much all about keeping the pound because at that time, I think we'd had the big coming together of EU countries in nineteen ninety two. Maastricht, right? It was ninety two, I think. Yeah, I'm just bluffing my way through this as best I can. That's when the whole talk of the single currency and all this kind of stuff really started pushing on. And so uh, you had a political party over here who were very interested in keeping the pound. And that made sense. I'm like, yes, I don't really see why we need a we need a united currency. I think we could all get by with our own currencies and still competing and sharing a market and all this kind of stuff. I guess there was also that part of me that quite liked the idea of the underdog. The political underdog, you know? Again, we're looking at a point where the Conservative Party was still quite strong, Thatcher had gone, Major was in place, but they hadn't been a complete cluster by this point. That was to come. Mm -hmm. Labour was transitioning, if they hadn't already transitioned, from Kinnock to Smith, who then tragically died and was taken away from us and replaced with uh, Tony Blair, who was obviously the better he says, trying to roll his eyes so loud that you can hear them, but that not coming through on the microphone, sadly. No, I took everything you just said at face value. Has anyone been able to... I'm sure there is. It might be in the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. Has anyone been able to roll their eyes so vigorously you can actually hear the squelching? I think what you were getting at, though, is that you're, um, you were into UKIP before they were cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the guy who formed them, I was literally reading about this the other day, but he, um, I'm, I'm saying literally too much. <laughs> I'm finding I'm saying it far more than I should. I think I'm trying to replace um with it, but it turns out I'm just saying um just as much, but now I'm saying literally a lot as well. Oh, we both say um a lot. I mean, I do the editing, I know. <laughs> so as, uh, as I come up with more and more of these placeholder words the actual content of what I'm saying is starting to reduce to be more representative of how much thinking I've actually put into most of it, to be fair. Um, Yeah, the guy who formed UKIP apparently renounced UKIP recently. I wouldn't be surprised uh, because UKIP, as it is now, is a very different beast Hmm. for very many different reasons. Um, The frog-faced Nigel Farage wasn't really part of the picture back in... uh, in 93, I think, when it was formed. Uh, I think Farrell's also got chucked out of the Green Party, didn't he? Or he was a member of the Green Party at some point. I cannot imagine Nigel Farage ever being a member of the Green Party. I can't see how the man I see today could have ever jived with Green Party policies. I can't see how those two things would connect. Do they like jive in the Green Party? I don't know whether the Greens have an official dance. (laughs) I'd, I'd imagine it would sort of involved the swinging of hair and looking towards the shoes the shoe gaze yeah oh god the autocorrect on my phone is really having trouble with um nigel farage first it thought i was trying to uh find out about the river the river niger um and then it thought i was talking about a garage niger garage hang on i'm gonna find out oh Tell you what, fuck it. No, let's just say he was in the Green Party and he didn't jive. Uh, he didn't dance the jive quite well enough, so they checked him out. He was much more uh, into freestyle uh, urban street dancing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
easy to see, isn't it? <laughs> you can picture it. Because, you know, that's the kind of dance um, backed up with the kind of music that definitely would have uh, originated within the United Kingdom. It wouldn't, oh, have, so wouldn't have come from abroad. Certainly, uh, farmers and country folk would have been uh, getting down to it of a May Day evening after all the Maypole nonsense has been got out of the way, which they only do for the tourists anyway. The thing that struck me as a little bit strange about the last few days is I've noticed we, we've all been very worked up about UKIP, me and the rest of the internet. Well, me and the people I follow on the internet anyway. And I had no idea there were so many other, like, little fringe far-right groups or parties or whatever who were knocking about at the moment. A couple of them, I can't think of their... Because uh, the EDL have always been in the background. They're basically skinheads, aren't they? They're old... Fa- they're, when you were writing your support paper for UKIP... <laughs> Um, it was much easier to see who the racist groups were, wasn't it? Because it was basically, it was the National Front, and maybe they were just starting to transition into the uh, BMP at the beginning of the 90s, I'm not sure. I remember in Southampton it was quite an issue because some of the Jewish graves were getting desecrated, I think in my second year here, so it would have been late 80s, early 90s. They were quite active in in parts of Southampton. And I think it was still the National Front who transitioned into the BMP. And now I think the EDL are a more extreme offshoot of the BMP or something. Or are they their own thing? It's like the Westboro Baptist Church in the US. They've got a very high profile because they turn up at really showy events like the the funerals of war heroes or or maybe not war heroes of us marines who who died in action and stuff like that um but actually there's only there's only like a couple of hundred of them maybe i don't i don't think there's very many of them at all it's just they've they had a really high profile and i think that kind of that tends to happen with a lot of these uh really showy noisy fringe groups doesn't it i don't think until recently ukip had that much of a profile really did they i think they were more of a a fringe group despite the amount of attention they've been awarded they still are a fringe group they have a handful of meps they do not have a single representative in parliament i don't have the numbers to hand but i'm not entirely sure they have a great deal of councillors in city and borough councils I think the thing is as well that you have to think of is their primary purpose is to attempt to eat at the European Union from the inside. Mm. It's an easy win for them. It's an easy campaigning point at the European elections when, quite frankly, two very specific things happen. Number one, a whole bunch of people go to the polls not really understanding the European Parliament. Number two, it's proportional representation. So it's easier for a seemingly smaller political party to get a seat because in each region there's like a handful of seats, something like, I don't know, six. It probably depends on the region, the size of the region, and therefore the amount of people who represent the population, if that makes sense. Based on the proportion of the votes, it'll filter down. The crushing thing that I found out only recently because I thought, well, the elections aren't that far away for both um, the European Parliament and also the local council... Um, I'd better see who the candidates are, at least, and do that bit of work. I hadn't I hadn't actually realised un- until I looked up that Nigel Farage is our MEP. He represents our region, South East England. I was terrified when I found I, that out. 
I don't think I'd realised that. I, I know that on Question Time, the episode, and I didn't watch it, but the episode of Question Time he was on recently was from here, wasn't it? it yeah, from Southampton, yeah. And apparently uh, the specific area it was filmed in is kind of a linchpin of UKIP. Apparently you, a friend of mine was saying that when you drive around there, you just, during uh, during any sort of elections or whatever, you just can't move for... Well, of course you can move, for that's overdramatic. But basically you can't go very far without spotting the little flags in people's front gardens. Yeah, it's held in the Berry Theatre in, uh, in Hedge End, that edition of Question Time. And um, Hedge End's an interesting area because... It certainly swelled in size in the last 15 to 20 years because a lot of housing development has happened there. But before then, and I can remember this in my lifetime, because I would travel through Hedge End to get to my grandparents' place. And when we first started travelling to Hedge End, we'd go over a motorway bridge and then there was farmland and there was farming machinery and there was cows and there was a barn. And I remember all this stuff. Take that same route now. And that's where all the out of town shopping is. And then beyond that are like housing developments that weren't there and they're all there now. So Hedge End has grown. I think on, on one respect, it represents the rural and I can see a lot of UKIP voters they're not as god this sounds terrible they're not as multicultural let's put it like that yeah they're not they don't live in southampton that's the big city down the road they're not interested in it yeah it's it's your more kind of traditional england if you like and i'm doing as many inverted commas as Mm. i can possibly do around that you'd be very unlikely to hear a foreign accent unless it was a farm animal Mm -hmm. but you've also got the interesting not quite a major city not quite a town sort of a villagey sort of thing because like Eastleigh, which is a place that we've discussed on a couple of occasions before, is quite rare for its region in that it has a strong Liberal Democrat vote. Do you have those sort of standout towns or standout villages that sort of have their own political opinion, which almost flies in the face of everything around it? When you look at the the map around the area, you you know, Southampton's predominantly red, and then you've got Mm. um, kind of the Eastleigh area as... Liberal Democrat orange, and then there's just blue dotted around because you know you're now you're now looking at Little England all around Hampshire and stuff. Um, and and he, I think Hedgen's kind of also got that sort of because it's a newer place as well that it's kind of got its own political identity. It's not like um, I keep knocking the mic. I hope that's not coming through a bit, but not not so you'd notice. It's okay because they're newer places. They don't necessarily have like some of the like a lot of the big cities will be more left-leaning, will be more Labour voting, because that's where the captains of industry are. It makes sense that they would be that way. And then when you go out to the rural areas and you go out to the home counties and, and kind of the more kind of quiet England places, of course they're going to be Conservative voters. So these newer places often have a different political identity that comes out of... doesn't come out of a history necessarily... And so it might be easier, and maybe their targets too, it might be easier for um, places like that to be campaigned on and become UKIP voters and stuff. I, I um, A few years ago, with a previous girlfriend, I was driving to Swindon, around the Swindon area, to visit one of her grandparents. And there was, on the drive up there, again, through a lot of rural England, that, yeah, UKIP banners all over the place. And it was so odd, because I wouldn't see them. You'd rarely even see like a, a a little A4 poster in a window around here in big city life. But on the drive up here, there are massive banners and stuff. It was just crazy. Yeah, the areas where people might actually meet immigrants 
and people from other countries and stuff don't see immigration as as much of a problem as the people who wouldn't ever meet foreign people or or different coloured people and if you can get your message across predominantly based on fear predominantly based that your that your nice little corner of england where you've you know got your acre of land and it's peaceful and it's quiet you know those foreigners are going to come over and they're going to tarmac the lot and they're going to put up wind turbines everywhere and they're going to be speaking french at you and you can't <laughs> even spend your own money anymore uh, if you live in the country what you really need to worry about is uh, city flooding. wankers sorry flooding flooding well there's flooding yeah and uh, and city wankers buying the second house out there well, yeah. i just after referring to nigel farage as a city wanker earlier on i i feel like it's decent shorthand for exactly the weird stereotype i'm, I'm talking about that might not even exist because i never encounter any of them so they scare me as much as immigrants scare people who never actually have to meet immigrants have to meet immigrants because we're all forced to do it on a daily basis we've recently been trying to find somewhere to live we've still got this house but we want to buy somewhere that isn't like slap bang in the middle of a city where we're sharing like walls with uh, students on either side and somewhere that's in a catchment area for a nice school because that's the sort of people we are now and my wife would kind of like to live out in the country somewhere or at least somewhere a little bit quieter like a smaller town or a village somewhere but we aren't loaded. I've been very insistent that it's not just the location that we live in. If we have to trade up our actually quite nice three-bedroom house in a place that isn't ideal with a house where we might like our neighbours just as little, but that happens to be out in the middle of nowhere where we can't like get to anywhere really easily then I wasn't happy with that. It has to kind of it doesn't matter that a place just be green and quiet Mm. Uh, it also has to be like a community an actual place and so we've had this sort of conflict because we've been looking online and you see the houses and the houses are quite you know the 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 way new new builds look in a on a website on right move or somewhere like that they always look really nice but then we'd go on to google maps or whatever and we'd have a look at the different areas and i'm um my wife amy's parents live in what we would tend to think was quite a nice area near um, near Oxford. And they actually live in a really nice house and a really nice little cul-de-sac. But you walk around the corner from them and they're basically in the middle of housing estate hell. Because at some point someone decided that streets and roads were a little bit old-fashioned and, you know, that it meant traffic would be going through so your kids wouldn't be safe playing out in front of your house or whatever. So it's an endless fractal landscape of tiny little cul-de-sacs, places with names like Savile Way. As much as I like going and going and visiting their house, it's if you want to go to their supermarket, it's on one of those weird little squares that look like they were designed by IKEA somewhere and then just dropped in the middle of these estates all over the place. Where there's a supermarket at one end and there's exactly one fish and chip shop, one Chinese takeaway, a hairdresser's in a little arcade, and a square car park. It's not a place in the sense that I think of places. It's not there was a resource there like a, a river or a, or farms or or someone built a church there and things grew up around that or, or whatever. It's it's literally all been designed somewhere else because you need houses. We need houses for people that can't afford to live in Oxford in that case and Southampton in this case. Mm. Let's just build houses and you drop them out of the sky, out, out of space. They slam into the ground there and they could be anywhere in the country 
but you know it's a bunch of houses for people and if those people don't really care you know if those people are just they just need to be near a supermarket or whatever they don't need a place of any character they're all going to drive to work anyway so who gives a fuck and these are supposed to be nice places to live, but I go into them. I I relented. There were there were a couple of really nice houses in Hedge End, and I relented. I said, okay, before we go and look at them, let's drive around the area and see if I could handle it. I was trying really because I knew I'd already set my mind against the place, so I was trying really hard to be good. But then we'd be driving down one cul-de-sac that went off another cul-de-sac that went off another cul-de-sac. And I'd be like, I don't even have a fucking clue where we are right now. Southampton isn't exactly based on a grid, but I'm used to cities where there's one long street and other streets that go off it. And you can normally work out roughly where you are. And you can't do it in these places. They're just weird. And um, we parked up outside this house And Amy said, see, it looks really nice. And I was like, yeah, it does. It looks okay." And then she said, and there's a sort of a concerted effort in these places as well to not make all of the houses look exactly the same sometimes. Sure. Yeah. So you can't even get a sense of, well, obviously all of the houses were made in the same era. They were all made in the last 20 years. So you'll get two or three houses that are the same and then a couple of houses that are different. And it's not that someone decided they wanted to build that sort of a house there. It's that the developers who are going to sell this, they want the brochure to look varied. So you can buy a a Savile house or you can buy a Blackburn house or something like that. And each one will have a different name and it will have a slightly different makeup. So we're outside this house and I can't remember what sort it was. Can't remember. Trying to come up with a pop culture name, but I just keep trolling the old old U-tree names. It's just not healthy. How about Kid Jensen Muse? Kid Jensen Muse, yeah. Mr. Tumbleway. Blobby <laughs> Row. <laughs> the, um, so anyway, we're outside this house, and I'm looking at it on Google Maps on the phone because we had to find out our way to it because you can't just go. It's like all these weird little roads. And Amy said, see, it's really nice and it's really quiet. Look, the woods are only two minutes in that direction. We drove by them. <laughs> For I said, now. Well, yeah, and I said... Uh, yeah, that was two minutes in the car. Actually, it was nearer to five minutes in the car. It's about 10 or 15 minutes walk. Um, and he said, but it's really nice and quiet because we were in the car and there, were, there wasn't anyone else around. We were just strangers sitting in a car outside a house. And I was like, it's right next to the motorway. And she said, don't, don't be daft. The motorway was miles away. We came off the motorway mm. and it's mm-hmm. miles away. And I was like, no, look, on Google Maps here, that fence there that's right next to the house, on the other side of that is the motorway. And maybe you couldn't even hear it when you're in the house, you know? We're looking at an area that's under the flight path for the nearby airport. So street noise and stuff like that, it's not a huge concern. But for me, it's like, this isn't a place. It's like Sim City. It's a housing development, and they try to find the least offensive place to put it. That's why this is here. It's a non-place, and it kind of freaks me out. And there are loads of these around the around the uh, around the country. I don't know if it's a worldwide phenomenon, but it's definitely a thing that's going on here. And they're all interchangeable. They've all got those little cookie cutter squares of shops. I've never known less a less friendly supermarket than one of those either. It's weird because people live surrounded by all this greenery and with nice walks into the country really nearby, and they've all got that cold, dead-eyed hostile english white family thing going on it it's very odd not maybe not all of them i'm sure you know there are loads of nice people who live in those areas but i've only literally only met three when things get plonked in like that 
and they can't be built close to a major town or a city because there just isn't the room anymore. So you're finding those extra patches of land on the outskirts. This is like where the suburban sprawl happens, isn't it? You either try and continue to build a part of a town that already exists, or you have to try starting a new one. And some of these fall really badly in between the two. They're not so connected to the town that they're supposed to come from that they feel a part of it, but they don't have enough of an identity to really make it out on their own. You know, a medium-sized co-op and a chip shop is not going to bring everybody together. You're not building like a a permanent community here in these new developments you're finding places for people to live and sort of apologizing that they're not close to where the action is a friend of mine lives in one and he's uh when i said i know three people i mean literally i know two people him and his wife that's cheating yeah i know i got confused he was very defensive well not defensive but he was very nicky talking nonsense uh the, the it is absolutely a place how can it not be a place i live in it that by definition means it's a place hopefully everyone kind of knows what i mean by it not being a real place and i said well we were driving for ages looking at these houses i didn't see one single shop and he said there are shops there are shops like literally five minutes away from us and i said where and he took me onto google maps and showed me and it was a retail estate (laughs) with one of those gigantic burger kings you know the places that are in the middle of all of the car parking, there are busy roads around them and then there's loads of car parking where they are. And When you're talking about shops, you're not talking about places where, where you're going to buy a, a nice sofa every weekend that's not you know that's that's event purchasing that doesn't happen very often but yeah i mean those are the kind of places you get all the out of town shopping out there which is great if you need to make a big purchase but if you're doing some you know something that would happen in in a traditional town center you're not going to find it in out of town shopping and if you do it's going to be like in hedgen's case marks and spencer right so yeah, great. If you want to buy some clothes locally, you can go to M&S and that's your choice. That's all you have because everything else in out-of-town retail warehouse village is um, uh, stuff for the garden, white goods or computers or TVs or um, furniture, beds, pine, lots of wood. This is kind of like the trade-off, the New Forest trade-off I'm unwilling to make. If I'm going to have to live with the inconvenience of living in a quiet place that's a little bit out of the way... There'd better be a fucking cheese shop run by someone whose family has been running it uh, for the last 200 years and an actual butcher's and maybe a little convenience store that isn't just another co-op and a church. I will never go to the church, but there has to at least be one and it has to be at least a couple of hundred years old or else what's the point? What's the point of living in a quiet place if it's quiet because it's cold and dead-eyed and (laughs) zombie-like? It sounds like I'm being really hard on Hedge End, and I am being really hard on Hedge End, but I have to state that that my point is, and I feel like this is a worse insult for Hedge End than anything else I could possibly say about it, the problem I have with it is it could literally be anywhere. At least my experience of everywhere down from Lincolnshire is that these areas have been popping up all over the place. They don't have any character. They don't have anything to them. I grew up in one that um, was uh, just outside of Peterborough called the Ortons, and it's probably one of the larger ones um, I've encountered and almost one of the most successful because it did have its own pubs and its little arcade. It's like its nice little shopping centre and stuff like that. And, uh, and as far as I can tell, descended into drug abuse. And if it's possible for a whole area to hit its teens and get addicted to smack, 
Uh, I'd say that Orton probably did that. I don't know if it's in recovery yet, but definitely I'm relieved that my sisters don't live there anymore. The trade-off is you can walk along the streets because they're relatively safe because no one's ever driving along them. But the problem is you have to walk miles to get anywhere to to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, So the problem I have with Hedge End is it's not a place. It could be literally anywhere in this country that's been built up in the last 30 years, I guess. And if I lived somewhere like that, I'd probably end up voting UKIP as well. Not because I believe necessarily in what they were saying, but damn it, if I have to be miserable and be staring down the barrel of that sort of existence for the next 40 or 50 years before I uh, inevitably succumb to, well, actually, I'm 40, so 40 or 50 years, I'll be succumbing to old age, won't I? (laughs) 20 or 30 years where I'll be succumbing to alcohol or alcoholism or whatever. Yeah, if I have to live with that miserable life, then yes, I want to vote in a political party that will make everyone else have to live that miserable life as well. <laughs> and the Tories are bad enough, but I, I, I probably would feel bitter enough that I'd want it to be UKIP. I don't think that's why people vote them. I think that literally they don't know any better. I think that the thing that's contributing to the attention that UKIP seem to be getting this time round is that the political class has decided to make um, abroad the enemy. All of the main political parties have to tread a careful line, whereas UKIP can come out and say in a certain amount of words what plenty of people are thinking and perhaps uncomfortable in trying to form into words themselves. Mm. In terms of rural England, you're not going to get an influx of EU migrants Uh, there because there's no work there for them so it's interesting that that seems to be where their um, grassroots is if you like it's more like selling them the fear and that ukip can stop the cancer that's already invaded the cities into evading the rest of the united kingdom it's in the towns and it's in the cities where that change in the makeup of the community has been the most closely felt you had the deal i can't remember if it was late in the 90s or in the early 2000s and probably the early 2000s where we had the open borders and the free movement of people to find work and so that means that these communities aren't they're not full god that's an exaggeration Mm. but you know they start accumulating people from european countries who have come to find work and they have they have even greater cultural needs than um the kind of the commonwealth communities that were invited over and, and and migrated over to the united kingdom over a period of decades you can almost see them one after the other, you know, the the, the Caribbean and, and the uh, the Indian and the, and the Pakistani kind of, they all sort of have their time, if you like, in terms of uh, England's rather dirty history in, in, in representing the, uh, these different um, cultures and races. Um, I wasn't alive then, so it's hard for me mm-hmm. to be exact on this. It's called unanswered after all. It gives me the wiggle room. Um, <laughs> And and then you had the representation uh, in, in the in the seventies, particularly, but also it bleeds into the eighties of, of the of the Indians and the Pakistanis. We weren't incredibly kind to them at the time, but I, that's I think that's always been part of how British culture has tried to deal with the changes: is to sort of go, "Oh, this is a bit awkward. I'll take the piss," and hopefully that will just make us feel a little bit better about it. 
But the the point I'm getting at is is that they bedded in. They took a while to bed in, and these people came over, and they intended to stay. And it's different now because you've got a lot a lot more different kinds of of people coming over and settling in, and they might be here for a, f- a few years, and then they'll go back home or something. But the schools today versus the schools that I recognised are different in the respect that now you've got. And this might be a bigger deal because I'm closer to the city centre than the schools that I attended, which were out uh, the other side of the River Itch in, and definitely in kind of the the suburbs, if you like. Um, But now you've got children who uh, have English English as a second language going to schools and putting, you know, changing the way that, that schools act now. When I was a kid, I didn't have to worry about whether another kid could understand me or not when I was speaking English. But, the, you know, there are going to be some children that are still sort of catching up on learning English in schools. And, and, and that's kind of one aspect of how I think a town or a city life today is very different from not that long ago, like 15 years ago, really. You don't have to travel that far back for the dynamic of a community, the dynamic of a, of a town to be what we would see as more traditionally the you know, the, the Britain that we grew up with and the Britain that we knew. But I think we were in the, the, we were probably growing up in the sweet spot because I went to a school in Peterborough that was very mixed. I also lived in areas that were very not, they didn't have the, you know, they're probably UKIP. Actually, I'm pretty sure I saw something about Nigel Farage being in Ramsey, which is one of the places I lived in up in Cambridgeshire. But the school I went to in Peterborough was very mixed. And all of the guys there, I don't really remember many girls who are from immigrant backgrounds, but all of the guys there were just like me. Their parents had come over here when, like 20 years before, but had moved away from the only Asian community or only Greek community or only Sikh community or, or whatever. We were all English kids, and we couldn't really relate to the experience our parents had had, I don't think, either, even though it was only 15, 20 years before. Mm. And I guess the Asian, I don't think there was a Greek influx, except maybe in North London, but I think the really big immigration pushes probably finished about 15 years, maybe in the five or 10 years before I was born, and then didn't really, there wasn't really another surge until the last 20, last 15 years, which I guess is what we're talking about. So a lot of the kids we were meeting that were the same age as us, well, yeah, their parents were the ones who came over 15 years before and they'd been brought up English. So, of course, they spoke English. I don't know if that's necessarily the experience you were having in Shoaling. And, of course, my situation would have been slightly different because I had Greek parents as well. So the reason why I tried to frame that as awkwardly Mm -hmm. as I did (laughs) was, again, because obviously we, we keep stumbling into the whole UKIP thing. Mm-hmm. And trying to frame that memory and the and the things that I'm seeing now and, and seeing how that change and how that quick of a change might shock people into thinking that things are really quite terrible and it's not the country they recognise or it's not the community they want. And then opening them up again to these sorts of arguments. Yeah. It's always the this dark seed 
of the immigrants coming over and stealing things, you know, stealing work away from us and stealing our uh, hard-earned social security away from us and and, and getting to uh, take advantage of all of the British things that, you know, that are just ours and um, they haven't earned them yet. All this nonsense that creates a very uncomfortable us versus them, which I don't think is fair. But it's not the immigrants' fault that they're, that the free movement of people across the EU, it's not the fault of people necessarily. Okay, yeah, perhaps we all voted for it, whether we knew it or not. But that's the system. Specifically in terms of the economic problems that the United Kingdom has right now, that's not the fault of immigrants. The deficit that the country has, that's not the fault of immigrants. The fact that there are a lot of people who are out of work or struggling to find work or have had to go self-employed or are doing part-time instead of full-time, which they'd rather do. This isn't the fault of immigrants. This is the fault of a still very sick economy that had nothing to do with immigration and everything to do with the loosening of regulation of banks and markets back in the 80s, which has, you know, over a series of years caused banks to get too big for their boots, in inverted commas, too big to fail, and then required a vast amount of public money in order to rescue, um, punching a hole in the, uh, in the budget book of many a nation. Um, and now we're all kind of having to suffer while we fill that gap. You know, and, and it's in those times where it's hard, I think, for any sensible political organisation to sit us down and rationally tell us the facts, because the facts are a bit uncomfortable and the facts are hard to explain. And it would require a politician of any m- mainstream political party to sort of have to eat humble pie while telling you the truth. And, and that's not what they're trained to do. So. No, well, no, exactly. And, and with significant elections happening this month in terms of the European Parliament and in terms of councils, plus the general election next year, this isn't the time to, to, to be sitting down and telling us facts in a sensible and, and reasonable way because everyone's thinking about how on earth are they going to earn people's votes. This is the perfect time to start talking about the big bad. And it's convenient to blame it on this because no one understands it or very few people understand it. And it's, and it's, it's clearly an argument that UKIP can win because again, none of the main parties are going to be able to talk in those terms. I mean, they're all in one way or another making concessions that, yeah, well, I guess, you know, you guys are a bit unhappy about immigration. So I guess we're a bit unhappy about it as well. So um, we'll just shift the deck chairs a little bit. But none of them are going to say no, because there's still an inherent value in the free movement of people. Uh, But more importantly, there's an inherent value in being part of a European market and 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 a European community that is looking out for each other. It's far better that we're all sort of working together in some way, shape or form, instead of us all being separate again. I think they all also kind of know that the immigration thing is, it's largely artificial. They know that it's a whole bunch of things. The economy didn't fail because of immigrants, it failed because of banks, and also because of people's attitudes changing to home ownership, and the government's attitude changing to social housing, and just culture becoming a little bit more acquisitional and not just the banks, the fact that 
all businesses started relying on this stock market model of economy, which, you know, is largely based on made up numbers, but numbers that are really important and that people kill themselves over, it turns out. And, um, you know, I think that the Conservative government is absolutely capable of using fear of immigration as a uh, vote winner. But I think even they probably kind of know that that actually it isn't the problem that the papers are telling people it is. It isn't the problem that people think it is. Because the, the numbers are never anywhere near what people assume they are either, are they? On people who come into the country, on what jobs they're actually taking, on whether or not they're actually claiming benefits. There was the big mail story, the, the big Daily Mail story at the in the run-up to Christmas about how we were going to get an influx of Romanian and Bulgarian immigrants on New Year's Eve or something, and they were actually saying that planes and trains and buses had all sold their last, uh, you know, they were all sold out and people were paying hundreds of times the price of a ticket to actually get on it. That was just all fabrication. Like, one guy actually came over, apparently, who who wasn't already a resident here. That's right. There was, like, news crews and all sorts hanging just around, like, at, major airports, weren't they, yeah. at New Year's? It was just ridiculous. And they and they went and talked to the guy, the one guy who wondered what the hell was going on, I, I assume. Like, they were, they were trying to ask him about... I don't know if they were trying to ask him about benefits or anything, but that was certainly the narrative. The narrative wasn't just that they were going to come over and steal our jobs. You know, maybe half of the million or so were going to try and steal our jobs and the other half were going to try and steal our benefits. And they uh, they asked him what was going on, and he already had a job lined up, some labouring job lined up or something, and just looked absolutely perplexed at all of the attention. <laughs> and the fact that none of that was true didn't seem to slow them down at all. It feels like it seems like much more of a problem right now because communities are just less cohesive than they were 20 years ago. And I imagine even in the communities, even in the immigrant communities, like if you went down to St. Mary's, okay, admittedly, everyone always thinks that things were cosier when, you know, when they were younger than they are now. But I think even if you went down and asked people in the immigrant communities, they'd even say that it isn't as it isn't as cohesive as it as it used to be. People don't know their neighbours now and it isn't because their neighbors are immigrants in a lot of cases it's because their neighbors are students or because as you've said there's like uh, people tend to live where the jobs are now there's a lot more renting i think going on you know a lot a lot more shorter term renting than you rent your council house and that's where you live yeah it's, it's like owning it or or um or you know you buy your own place because you can afford to and that's where you're intending to stay i think people tend to go where the work is a lot more somewhere like southampton you can talk to most of the people we know and you're one of only a handful who actually were born in this area and have sort of stayed around here nearly everyone else is someone who came here to study or came here for work or for some other reason and just or because they came with a partner or something like that and just stayed and i think that's probably the case all over the place as well yeah. it, it just so it's this combination of a natural uh, xenophobia along racial or um cultural lines added to the fact that 
in most cases, people don't even know if their neighbours are English or not. You know what I mean? If you hear, if you overhear them when they're having a barbecue in the back garden, then maybe that maybe you'll learn more about them then than you ever knew <laughs> the whole year beforehand. And so there's just that that general lack of cohesion to communities that makes it easier for this sort of fear of the other to seep in a little bit more. Um, but I think it's it's kind of always been there because I think I talked about it recent on a recent episode of this that um, I remember when we lived in this little community in Ramsey and my dad had the my parents had the fish and chip shop there was a there was a, an unemployed guy who came in there who used to mouth off to my dad about all of the foreigners coming over here and stealing our jobs but like this was in a small town where. There were no foreigners except the people who ran the Chinese takeaway and the people who ran the fish and chip shop who had their own business or weren't stealing anybody's jobs. And it was a guy talking who was unemployable anyway and wasn't looking for any work, but who was by no means uncommon. You know, that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone say anything like that. But I've heard that sentiment voiced by people just as in the dark as that guy ever since quite regularly rewind back to 15 18 years before that when my dad was at school it by no means it by no means was uh like the the it, it wasn't race riots or anything like the stuff that makes it into history books but like my dad and one of his other greek cypriot friends and an asian friend of theirs were regularly getting into fights because people were picking fights with them because they were foreign you know my dad learned english while he was also learning all of the other stuff in secondary school, and so did a lot of his peers. I've been thinking about this a a little bit recently, because we've been spending a bit of time with my extended family, and I I look at them in the context of immigrants coming over and stealing jobs. And in my mum's family, I think all of the men have their own business. And, you know, they started out doing shitty manual labour when they first came to England, but as soon as they had enough money to buy a little bit of office space or to start hiring other people to do building work for them instead of the other way around they form their own business so they're taxpayers they're probably paying an awful lot more tax and employing an awful lot more people than any of the people complaining about immigrants coming over stealing all our work blah 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 it's really interesting for me to sort of measure the two things against each other because all of my asian friends when i was growing up well i didn't i didn't have many that i really knew what their family did in particular but like their parents were all really hard working uh, generally had their own business or or were or had trained to a level where they were getting paid quite well to do whatever it was they were doing and it's just so far away from the idea that anyone would come to this country for a free ride because it's not a particularly easy place to get a free ride i don't think to be honest if you're ever stuck in one of those automated systems and it really is starting to do your nut in just pick the option that says you're going to leave them that's the thing i discovered recently talking to talk talk you know one of the options always says uh, do you have a complaint or are you thinking of cancelling your subscription if you just pick that one you pretty instantly get through to an actual human being and then you can ask them to put you through to someone (laughs) you need to talk to. And it normally works. That's a customer service life hack brought to you by Nick there. Yeah, I I used to, I always kind of suspected it might work, but I've always felt a bit guilty about doing it because, you know, if I don't have any intention of actually leaving them, it's just, uh, you're just one of those people who says, I want to talk to the manager. (laughs) 
I just want to talk to a person. Yeah, just anyone, someone with agency. Yeah, I just need to talk to a human being. You know, I, I would like to use my own words and not the words that a corporation decides are the most convenient or understandable for them. And have a human being on the other end of the uh, of the phone be able to interpret and understand what I'm saying. And perhaps the two of us have some sort of an actual human connection <laughs> to, to represent my relationship with that company. That'd be swell. <laughs> is this the old man episode? This is not the old man episode. This is the common fucking sense episode. <laughs> Where's our political party? Well, I think UKIP are the common sense party, though, aren't they? <laughs> Apparently. If Nigel Farage had literally just said at some point, I will make sure that every organisation has to have a really clear phone line advertised on their website, and it won't be free phone, because that never works from your mobile phone. <laughs> And everybody's got mobile phones now. So free phone numbers are useless. If he'd said that, I'd be voting for them. Right, right back at the beginning of the, right back at the beginning of the uh, conversation, you mentioned um, how small, although steadily growing, group of people were actually supportive of UKIP. And I think what you were getting at is that we are hearing and seeing an awful lot more about them than is actually representative of the amount of people they have in seats and the amount of people who actually support them. Yes, I think I think I would have probably got closer to making that point explicitly had the conversation not gone where Wherever it, went. it went. Yeah. It, it's absolutely true because I think it was you who told me uh, or it might not have been, I don't know. If the number's wrong then it wasn't you, it was something I picked up off the internet. <laughs> that um Nigel Farage has been on Question Time 14 times this year. That number's not come from me, but I would uh, he's he's made himself incredibly available for media appearances. Yeah, the media have been very happy to put him in that position as well. Indeed, yeah. I don't know. I, when the BMP were doing the rounds last time, I got very frustrated with the way they were being covered by the media as well because question time is is very um, combative and just generally the, the uh, media discourse is... Because they've worked out that people like watching conflict on TV, that's basically what they're giving people as political debate. So what, what I remember seeing is a guy from the BMP going on to Nicky Campbell's show who's basically Kilroy for now, where he's got his audience and he gets someone up there. And and in the case of the BMP, he got the guy up there and he'd ask him a question and the BMP guy would start to answer and Nicky Campbell would just start shouting at him um, about how everything he says is blah, fascist, blah, 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 blah. And it's accurate, but... In terms of how illuminating it is, all it really illuminates is that Nicky Campbell or Nicky Campbell's producers want him to be seen as being really anti the anti the BMP. It doesn't do anything to put the BMP in front of people and put their beliefs and their policies under scrutiny. And I think that's kind of been happening with UKIP as well. Yes. They're being invited on to... Um... To be the novelty act, in a way, we need someone to talk about immigration. A representative from UKIP is going to, uh, you know, more happily do that than anybody else because it's the drum that they're beating right now. Yeah, and it gives them an awful lot of attention that in other debates they wouldn't really ordinarily have. It's not a concern, really, whether they're they're getting the oxygen of publicity or not, or whatever. But but it legitimizes them in a way that I don't think is entirely representative. Question Time 
the episode that you were talking about, I actually watched, I very, very rarely watch Question Time. I used to watch it religiously a few years back, but um, it did, it was already there in, you know, in all fairness, but it, it did move more and more towards the combative and it was less a debate program and more of this combative thing and and it's and, like jeremy uh, cole but with politicians and you'd find that um it's always been there but it's something that i became more aware of as i was watching that you'd often get people uh, panelists in particular saying things because they knew if they said it in the way that they said it or they said a particular thing that it would get a nice round of applause at the end of their little Mm -hmm. speech and that was going to be a good thing because that obviously means people like them and that they were gaming the audience with some of the stuff they were saying as well and it's like actually i just like an honest debate but what we've got here is a certain amount of playing to the gallery and grandstanding you know you know between panelists as well this particular episode of Question Time based in Southampton with Nigel Farage on the panel spent at least half of its running time talking about immigration before it got onto anything else, which played wildly into this man's hands. Mm. You know, for better or for worse, I wouldn't necessarily say he was the victor, but it meant that he was in an, uh, that Nigel Farage was in an area in which he felt like he was the most comfortable. There wasn't a great deal else, I think, that he could really offer that sounded as grounded, you know, or that he had as convincing an argument on. Once we get past the European elections and we realise that, and, you know, okay, this episode of Unanswered is coming out afterwards, so Mm -hmm. we'll be listening back and I may well be eating my own words, but I don't see a massive change in the way the votes are going. Despite all of this discussion right now i don't know whether enough people care significantly enough in the european elections to get these guys in i i I, you know i don't see it but we could be looking in the not too distant future that a lot of the effort and energy in order to give these people a platform might have been for naught or for very little gain i mean I, i guess the biggest concern is that because loads of people because most people don't really care about it you know, voter turnout is pretty bad generally, and a lot of people don't really care about this one in particular, that a disproportionate amount of UKIP supporters or people who've become UKIP supporters over the last few weeks will vote just because they care more about it than the people who don't support UKIP. I don't know. thing is, because I think it happened with the Nick Clegg debate a little bit as well from what I've heard, that the tendency is to try and score political points by giving the funny UKIP clown a spanking in public rather than actually, like, having scoured their policies and trying to have a nuanced debate with them where you're actually picking up troublesome things that people might not have realised about them and asking them directly about them. You're just sort of saying, well, you, sir, are a cad. You're a... Party's clearly fascist. Unlike Nick, wonky, crazy-eyed man, uh, that's not me I'm talking about. I'm talking about the BNP guy, Nick Griffin. Unlike him, he isn't very presentable. Nigel Farage, like you said, he clearly knows what the most basic straw man arguments people are going to come at him with are. So if you're if you're just going to try and score points by being more liberal than him and and telling him off for how nasty and right-wing he is in a public debate, well, he knows how to deal with you. 
you have to be a little bit better at being a politician than that. And maybe that's what happens on the question time thing. And it kind of bothers me because it, it ignores the, the two, and I know I've said this elsewhere, um, but it ignores the two main things that are part of the, if there can be said to be a British character, there are two fairly major uh, things about it. We don't like to feel that someone's being bullied in front of us. And we like an underdog. If Nigel Farage keeps going on to Question Time because they keep inviting him, and then the other people on Question Time and some of the audience keep telling him off for things that they kind of know are in UKIP's manifesto, but that he isn't actually saying right there, that, that isn't actually being brought up right there, and he's not having to put his voice to these policies or anything, then all the audience is seeing and all the people at home are seeing are... Well, that man just went up there, said, I think we all understand that something needs to be done about the state of the country. And then there's a, everyone's piling in on him. People in this country really don't like to see that sort of thing. And if you don't know who he is and what he stands for, it's easy to see him as the bullied guy who still manages to be quite articulate. People in this country love that sort of thing, I reckon. So anyway, what has this show been about? <laughs> God, it's been all over the show. We started with... Um... A very, very quick Eurovision chat, and then it seemed to move into Europe, and then it moved into the English right wing, and then we were talking about um, the immigration stuff off the back of UKIP. We keep circling back to UKIP, didn't we? Yeah. God. Um, new sort of out-of-town suburbs and provincial villages and all that nonsense. I offered them all out. For a fight. Yeah. At high noon, uh, behind the bike sheds. <laughs> Then we were talking about the free movement of people, and then we were talking about banks and concierges, and it's all a bit of a mess. <laughs> Some, somewhere in there, we've got something. I don't know what it is exactly, but it'll be interesting to cut an hour out of what we've been talking about. <laughs> I do not envy you. Sometimes I feel very alone, Steve. Not recording the podcast, I just mean in general. <laughs> That's understandable. Yeah. I mean, can anybody really, even if they're in the same room as you, really know you, know your experiences, feel those emotions and be able to share them with you, really? No. Are they, who's to, who's to say they're not just pretending when they say that they understand and when they've been there too? What if it's just a lie? Well, because they want you to just shut up. <sighs> Is there any such thing really as love <laughs> or friendship? See, those are different podcasts altogether. And perhaps one that we should have done this evening instead of the <laughs> one that we did. Visit unanswered